Well, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5. We're we're beginning a series this week in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm excited for what the next few months will hold for us um, in this time in the Sermon on the Mount, and I am prayerful that God will use this time in looking at Jesus' most famous sermon, the most famous sermon of all time, may God bring glory to himself in reminding our hearts again of our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and of our king whom we can trust, our king who is good, our king who is worthy of all praise. So Matthew 5, if you have it in your Bible or if you have it on a smartphone or tablet or in the bulletin that you received, however you get there, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning as we begin the Sermon on the Mount. But before we begin, I want to share a little bit of bad news with you. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And I don't know if you saw in the Farmer's Almanac this week, they released their projections. Actually, I think there's a Farmer's Almanac and a new Farmer's Almanac. I don't know the story about what happened there, but I think they both stretch back centuries. And the projections have told us a cold, snowy winter. But if it's encouraging to you, nothing in 2020 has gone as expected, so maybe it'll be nice and warm and sunny. But anyway, winter is coming. Being raised in a place that did not have snowfall very often, when I would picture winter, I would, for some reason, oftentimes the first thing I would think about was Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. This place where the snowfall was just beautiful. This place where it seemed just pristine. Beautiful creatures and people going about their business, living in this place that looked idyllic. But it was not near as idyllic as it first seemed. As you walk through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you soon learn that the place, Narnia, is under a curse. And those of you that have a strong disposition against snow, you would agree that snow could be a sign of curse. And the line that is said in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Narnia is that it was as if it was always winter, but never Christmas. You ever feel like life is like that for you? Particularly if you are a Christian. Do you feel like in this life you experience something that seems like it's always winter but never Christmas? You feel like you are in a world that offers a reality that doesn't quite mesh with the reality that your heart feels. The desires that your heart has for the things of God. And life here is frankly hard. Perhaps your heart desires God, but deep in your mind or in the words of others, you feel that there is nothing that you can bring to the table that makes you right with God. Perhaps you seek to share the hope of the gospel with neighbors or with those around you. But you feel as if in these conversations, and interactions, and how you understand the world even at its most basic levels, you feel as if you stick out like a sore thumb, and all eyes are on you. 
Or you see how out of sorts the world is. Rife with chaos, despair. And you try to work good. You try to care for your fellow man. You try to serve those who are around you and in need. And yet, no matter how much you try to do, you feel as if your efforts are unnoticed, are, are, are even not even accomplishing much good, and ultimately you feel like your efforts to work good in this world are like trying to shovel water out of the ocean. But what if this feeling of being out of sorts or, inten- or, or, or intensely aware of how you don't quite fit, intensely alert to the fact that you feel as if the news tells you week by week by week, or if your own soul tells you as you try to grow in the faith that it's always winter, but never Christmas. What if this is actually evidence that nothing is wrong with you? but that you're right where you need to be. What Matthew 5, 1-12 shows us is that it's God's blessing to us to open our eyes to the uneasiness of this life and to prepare us for the promises of what is to come. Let me say that again. It is God's blessing to us to open our eyes to the uneasiness of this life to the hardship we feel in fitting and bringing the reality of Christ and His power and His gospel here. It's God's goodness to us to show us that and to cause us to feel the uneasiness that we might hope in Christ all the more and in what is to come. Follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 1-12. through 12. As Jesus begins His Sermon on the Mount, We are going to meet the one who delivers the sermon. Our king, our God in the flesh. And then we are going to see the kind of heart that is blessed. And the kind of hope that sustains that blessed heart. So let's read Matthew 5, verses 1-12. through Follow along silently as I read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. May he write its truth on our hearts. So first in verse 1, let's see our king, our God in the flesh. Verse 1 says, seeing the crowds. Now just pause here. 
there were Jesus's earthly ministry had begun and was underway and larger and larger crowds were beginning to follow him. They were interested. They were curious about what this man was teaching, what this man was doing. And so seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the Sermon on the Mount is called the Sermon on the Mount because he gave it on a mountain. Not the most original title for a sermon ever, but it works. And so Jesus climbed up on this mountain, and right up at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount, there's something for us to see about the identity of Jesus, what Matthew is showing us about who this man is that is delivering this message. If you remind yourself, or if you think back, uh, back to the Old Testament, let's say specifically to the book of Exodus, when um, God was giving the law to his people. He's given him the ten, ten Commandments. He was speaking his law to his people who he had redeemed and brought to himself. He did this. He spoke this law to them from a mountain. And so one thing that you see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that there's five different times Jesus goes up on a mountain and he, and he gives, uh, 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 he speaks to his people. He shows authority. He talks to them as one who has special, unique, powerful authority. And so one thing that we see in Matthew is that Jesus is in one sense bringing to light the law of God. He is not replacing the Old Testament law, but he's bringing it to fuller, to more full fruition, more full completion, as he is God in the flesh who has come to establish his kingdom. This will be uh, reinforced throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we travel through the Sermon on the Mount, my goal for us is to answer or to ask or to have in, in our minds the same question that his audience had in their minds as they were hearing him. And that question is simply, what does a disciple of Jesus look like? What does a disciple of Jesus look like? Not what do they look like physically, but what do they look like in their makeup? What is the condition of their heart, their desires, their words, their interactions with others. The Sermon on the Mount is timely because as we live in a world that is unraveling, as we look forward to the next 60 or so days in an election that is quite contentious, as we see the news and cities burning, protesters marching in streets, Injustice before us. Cries for some kind of righteousness. We see Jesus himself come and speak of a kingdom where his glory reigns. And where all the evils of this world will be no more. So the Sermon on the Mount is timely because in our world we can oftentimes feel upside down or out of place. The Sermon on the, uh, on the Mount masterfully weaves together all of God's law for us, causing us not to dismiss what God has previously said, but causing us to see it fully. And, if I may say so, the Sermon on the Mount is particularly compelling if you are kind of checking out Christianity. If maybe you're, you've got one foot in and one foot out and you're trying to decide what you believe, whether it's for reasons that you're not quite sure intellectually if you buy into the truths of what Christianity claims. Or maybe intellectually it checks out, but emotionally you have a hard time buying in. You have a hard time ascribing to the claims of Christ because of emotional hurt you have felt before. 
or maybe great, great trial that you have walked through, great hardship, even great suffering, when you thought if there is a God, He would surely intervene. And you feel like He didn't. Or maybe you're just largely out on Christianity because you've seen so many others who seem to be out of step with what Christianity ought to be, yet they profess the name of Christ. Whatever it may be, may I urge you today and over the weeks ahead to tune in and hear from Jesus Himself. Hear from Jesus Himself as He illustrates for us what it means to follow Christ. And as He orients our minds, as He orients our understanding of reality, around something that is greater than what we see right before us, but exists in not only what we see, but what we know, and how we come to know Him, and to live in and to anticipate His kingdom, as it will one day come. So our King speaks to us. He sits down with authority, and His disciples come to Him, and verse 2 says, He opens His mouth, and He taught them. Now let's get into what he taught them. He shows us the heart that is blessed and the hope that comes to those who are blessed. We enter into what many, what what are referred to, you might see it in your Bibles there, is referred to as the Beatitudes. That word simply means blessing or or, or blessed. So it's, it's a pronouncement of blessings from Jesus to his disciples to those who would follow after Him. And so you'll see these throughout the passage, just the outset of every single verse, from verse 3 through 11. Blessed, 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 blessed. And what these blessings serve to do, as we will walk through this, is they serve to speak to the hearts of those who feel as if it's always winter and never Christmas. The hearts of those who feel as if they uneasily do not quite fit in, do not quite jive with the world around them. and feel as if Christianity leaves them at odds with the context in which they live. Now the first question I want to ask is what do you think about when you think about being blessed? Someone says you're blessed. Why is it? Is it because you have the American dream? You've got the family with, what is it these days? 2.6 children. A dog, a white picket fence? Is it because you are financially wealthy or successful? Is it because you're particularly good looking? Or particularly smart? Or particularly gifted in some way, shape, or form? Is it because there's something about you that others look at and say, now that person has things about them that it looks like God has particularly cared for them? That is what we might think of when we think of being blessed. But in comparison with the Sermon on the Mount, that is wrong. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount shows us, as as we're walking through this, that the one who is blessed is the one who we don't even see anything about their physical state. But we see the state of their heart. We see the state of their relationship with God. Their trust in God their fellowship with God as revealed in the condition of their hearts. Jesus doesn't describe someone's blessing as being a physical state, but a spiritual state. 
and he doesn't describe it in a temporal sense today as if I'm healthy, I'm blessed, but in an eternal sense as he, anticip- as he helps us to anticipate and to live in light of his kingdom that is still to come. Remember, God's blessing to us is to open our eyes to the uneasiness of this life and to prepare us for the promises of what is to come. So look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, those who are spiritually empty. This is having nothing in oneself when you try to come to God. It's recognizing I can bring no baggage of myself. In fact, there is nothing about me that makes me lovely before God or makes, me, or makes me righteous before God. Erase that word lovely, but makes me righteous before God. And so the poor in spirit is the one who comes to God as we sang with Rock of Ages and says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he liberates the soul who feels they do not meet God's standard. He says, you don't, but I do. And there's blessedness knowing God in me. But on the other side, the bad news is that he humbles the prideful soul who refuses to see their need for God or who refuses to lay all aside and trust in him and trust in Christ to live. So the one who is poor in spirit Jesus tells them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next, he goes to those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. One thing that, that the Christian life shows us is it, is it pulls back our perspective a little, and in some senses it, show, it, it offers us a gladness and a joy that is not known apart from Jesus Christ. As the deepest corners of our hearts are unlocked to see and to behold Jesus Christ who meets us where we are, who comes to us and satisfies the deepest needs of our souls, we experience a joy in Him that is evermore. But we also see the sorrows of knowing a world that does not know Christ. Living in a world where death, that is not the way it's supposed to be, is far too rampant. And living in a world where suffering and violence and grief is all around us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ meets us and shows us that, that yes, it is right to mourn a world where it is always winter and never Christmas. And so Jesus said, blessed are you who mourn. you have sorrows that you carry and you don't know where to take them? Perhaps from your difficult upbringing, your pain and seeing others lost to illness or disease, or even just the sorrows of the last six or eight months. Come to Jesus with your sorrow. Know that it is okay to mourn before Him. Know that it is okay to mourn dreams that went unfulfilled. Know that it is okay to mourn Sorrows that seem as if they will never end. And know that for those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Next, let's move on. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek is to have a profound trust in God. 
to the point that you actively put the needs and the interests of others above your own. Meekness is oftentimes wrongly equated with weakness. It is to be a pushover, to be the one that others can take advantage of, the one who never gets their way, the one who bows to the needs of the loudest voice in the room. But Jesus shows us that meekness is an act of trust in Him. Wherefore, you put the needs of others above your own. You seek their good above your own. You seek their well-being, even if it means less than what you desire for yourself. Meekness is an awareness that you don't have to jockey for position. You don't have to talk behind a co-worker's back as you both compete for the same promotion. The meek person knows that God is God and he can be trusted in every avenue of human experience and interaction. Meekness isn't something we put on a resume. It's not something we say as a reference for someone. When last did you hear somebody applaud or uh, uh, spoken well of and that, that person is will, really meek? And yet Jesus says the one who is meek is blessed. Let me give you a little exercise, brothers and sisters. As we consider the one who is blessed, as we consider the one to whom God looks upon and smiles and holds dear, as you go home today, or as you go home or throughout this week, in interactions with those who are near to you, those who love you, those whom you can be honest with, Ask them, how do I do with gentleness? How do I do with understanding? How do I do with patience? How do I do with kindness? Where can I grow? The meek person doesn't have to fight to get theirs in this life because the promised reward is for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is a dogged pursuit of righteousness. You talk of righteousness, okay, what is that? Is that, is that holiness? Is that doing everything rightly? It's a, it's a pursuit of, 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 of doing all that, that builds up in the name of Christ. All that points to the goodness of Christ towards us. And so it is, it is an attitude or a disposition or actions that seek to reveal a trust in Christ. Therefore, there's, an, uh, there, there's a lack of need or a lack of desire to cut corners. A lack of desire to, to act unrighteously towards others. Or in our own personal dealings in which no one else might even see. But it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the danger that we face as Christians is to hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness credited to us that we may be made right with God, but to not hunger and thirst for righteousness that is born of His work in us. We want the righteousness to come to us, but we, we, we dam it up and stop the flow, whereas we should allow the righteousness of God to come to us and then flow out of us as He works His good purposes and transforming our heart more and more into Christ's likeness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Maybe it's here I ask, do you do the things that you hunger and thirst 
before, do they offer that satisfaction? Hunger and thirst for Christ and the things of Christ. And you shall never hunger and thirst again. Blessed, verse 7, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is similar to the righteousness piece where we love it when it comes to us, but it's hard for it to come out of us. But may I let you in on a little secret. I believe the more that we show mercy to others, the more we will be acutely aware of God's mercy to us. The more mercy comes from us, the more we can identify it as it comes to us. So what does it mean to be merciful? I think it means more than being kind. I think it means more than being nice. I want to think of it particularly in regards to showing mercy in the, evident, in the sense of one party who, who is not in an equal plane with the other, but comes to them out of, out of a stretch of love or out of a stretch of kindness or goodness to them, born out of that party. So think of it like this. When you consider mercy... The question is not, are you kind to the person who you share a desk with at work? The question is not, are you kind to the person who you live in your neighborhood with? The question is, how well do you show mercy to those who are hard to care for? To those who are difficult in your life? To those who you wish weren't in your life? Serving mercy or giving mercy is serving those who can give nothing in return. How often do you think of the needs of the less fortunate? How often do you think of the, 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 the needs of those who, who can give nothing back to you in return? What Christ shows us is that mercy is rich because His mercy has come to us through His cross, through His coming to us who could give nothing back to Him. But we only praise Him because of His mercy first coming to us in His work. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the, the innermost essence of the person, the very core of who a person is. It's the engine room of the ship that determines the direction of the whole ship. Christ is working His purity in us. And He says, those who are pure in heart, they shall see God. To see God is, we must be made like God. Him in whom there is no impurity. This penetrates at the Thoughts in our minds, the longings of our souls that never even make it out of our mouths, and yet calls us to reflect upon or to consider or to give our thoughts not to that which is impure, but to that which is pure. And this is going to be a theme that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus shows us that he's not just interested in our actions, but he's interested in our hearts. He's not just interested in our words, but he's interested in the heart that fuels the words. And he shows us that he's not just interested in us keeping the law of God, but he's interested in the work of God uh, writing a new law on our hearts. He doesn't want our hands, he wants our hearts. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is working peace via gospel proclamation between God and man. It's working for the good of man and man, but it's also working for the good of sharing the gospel between God and man. It's working to, to, to bridge that divide that those who are enemies of God may be made sons and daughters of God. And it's applying the gospel to those who are in relationship with one another yet need peace between them. Peacemakers are those who will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus shows us here that this puts us at odds with those around us. And yet He calls us to meekness, to mercy, to peacemaking, to purity, to poverty in spirit. He says, though you will face opposition for this, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see in verses 3 and 10, he, he, he kinda, I think he's bracketing these uh, Beatitudes when, when he says, uh, he concludes both of them with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I think he's getting at is he's showing us the reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ by showing us that our citizenship as as, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, is something that is born in us spiritually and then begins to flow out of us, but will ultimately find its culmination in His eternal reign over all of creation. And so He's saying that you are the first fruits of this kingdom of heaven, whereby He will reign in perfect mercy and righteousness in all days. And so as the kingdom of the earth crumbles, the kingdom of heaven grows and it grows through his work in his people. Lastly, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verses 11 and 12 are kind of an addendum or an addition to verse 10. And he's saying, rejoice and be glad. Fall in line, for your reward is great in heaven, even if you suffer much on earth. To be united with Christ is to, in one sense, be out of step with those who are not united with Christ. To be united with Christ is to live as citizens of His kingdom. And He is going to show us throughout the Sermon on the Mount what it means in this life, in this world to walk through a place that is not our home. And now you might look at these and say, blessed are, blessed are those who do all these things. I have a hard time doing them. Who can, who can keep such demands? Who can have such a pure heart? Who can show such perfect mercy? Well, the king himself who presents this to us, he is the one who was poor in spirit. He is the one who looked over Jerusalem and mourned her state. He is the one who in his meekness put the needs of you and me ahead of himself, even to the point where he gave his life. He is the one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, overturning tables in the temple where unrighteousness was rampant. He is the one who is merciful to those who could not muster the mercy in themselves or who could not make their way to Him 
apart from him coming to them in mercy. He is pure in heart, completing his perfect purposes for his people in coming to us and bringing us redemption. He is our peacemaker between us and God. And he was persecuted for righteousness sake, ultimately in his cross. Jesus Christ comes to us, lays these before us and said, and says, blessed are you in these for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And I who speak to you, I who dwell in you, I who come to you, I who have climbed up the top of this mountain, I am your king. Live under my reign. Let's pray. Lord God, blessed is the one who treasures Christ above all else. Help us to be a people who are encouraged by this, as perhaps we feel as if it is always winter and never Christmas. Help us to know that the kingdom of heaven is coming. And help us to know that winter will fade and Christ will reign. And help us to know that chiefly through the reign over us that he exhibits in our hearts today. As he sanctifies us and grows us in these things. May we live well as citizens of his kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.